Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Whenever I think about it, I'm like, okay, so with all the automation going on, uh, basically any intern level architect uh, tasks can get automated. Like what will those students do? Hey guys, welcome back to the Akyan podcast. I'm super stoked to be sharing this episode with you guys because we have a guest all the way from Ukraine. This guy is truly an exceptional mind because he's achieved so much in a very short span of time. He presently works as a BIM manager and he's also a computational designer. This is Pavlo Menchik. Now let me give you a brief about Pavlo. So he completed his Bachelor of Architecture and also his MR from Leaf Polytechnic National University. He presently works as a BIM manager for Savitsky Design based in Ukraine. And he also works part-time as a computational designer for Finch 3D. I hope you know that Finch 3D was famous for the plan which is automated. And he also works for Splash Modular which is a prefabrication company based in Canada. I don't know how he gets all this done but you'll definitely find out in this episode. Here's what you're going to learn in this episode. So he shares how he got into architecture, his experience in architecture school, how he picked up on the various softwares and coding languages, also about renting out bikes in Washington DC and how that helped him to work more, design automation of course, Blender, IFC, 3D scans, photogrammetry, BIM in Ukraine, BIM ISO standards and loads loads more. Like you heard this episode is going to be jam packed with a lot of information and there is some amount of jargon but nothing to worry just head to our website arkyan.com/slash 30 and you will find links to whatever is too technical for you and which will help you understand better on today's topic which is design automation i'm sure you're going to love this episode and i'm sure it's going to help you in your career and how you're going to practice architecture in the future Before I head to the episode it would be great if you guys could follow us on Instagram we go by the handle of arkyan i think you know the spelling which is a r c h g y a n and also follow us on patreon by supporting us it would be great if you guys could support us even with 1 dollar because this podcast is a one man show i'm running this on my own it takes a lot of effort to release one episode so please guys please do support and it would keep me motivated to release at least two episodes a week and provide value and help you in your career in architecture you can head to patreon.com/arkgyan with that said this is design automation with pavlo benchek he starts off by sharing how he got into architecture Let's go. Um so like uh I can't say I wanted to be an architect uh, from when I was like 3 uh, from where when I started getting like conscious uh, mind but uh, I always like uh so I always knew I like technical stuff so uh, right. I'm mostly an engineer uh like all my all my life but I also like some creativity I liked playing with Lego and stuff so like around like uh 13 14 years okay. I decided that architecture would probably be a good starting point uh, and also considering that when uh, you enroll for a bachelor degree uh, it's not like uh, you have to pursue that career and uh, I always thought that if I go architecture I could switch to like a construction engineer or to a designer so it opens many paths it's a very flexible career. it's a very flexible education uh so I went rolled as an architecture student and i decided to pursue um, a more specific renovation course in architecture okay. like in my first university you had to choose uh, like um, some like it's it was very basic but some specialization so this is a four year course 
Yeah, yeah. Bachelor was four years. So uh, I started learning as a uh, renovation architecture student. And um, it was very fascinating because uh, at my university, it's... Uh, it's kind of old school, so it's a plus and a minus. So okay. we didn't have too much uh, education in software, like we weren't taught Revit or ArchiCAD or, or like at all Grasshopper or anything computational design related. But right. we were taught to draw with ink, like with a pencil, with our bare hands, nice. and it just gave like a very good. Uh, it was a very good foundation to be an actual architect, not like a uh, just like a software user, mm -hmm. but just an architect as a general. So if you had a very good uh, uh, education on just like uh, engineering stuff, structural stuff, uh, like uh, general composition, uh, colors, uh, just painting, just uh, all the things that architects would study like 50 years ago, which mm -hmm. made them great, basically, like uh, the uh, most uh, renowned uh, computational design studios, like Zaharid Architects, like, for example, Zaharid, uh, she didn't study Grasshopper in the university. She just yeah, studied. Yeah, she finished math and then she got into architecture, right? And yeah, so yeah. She, she, she studied more basic things. Yeah. And uh, that's, uh, that's what my university was good at. And... Uh, just like a student, uh, when I, fr I first got introduced into like architectural software, when I was, uh, uh, starting for about like seven months already, mm. I, I didn't even use it just maybe like a basic Microsoft word or something to, to just uh, write lectures. Uh, and I immediately fell in love with it. So it was the first architectural software was ArchiCAD for me. And within a week from when I was introduced to it, I already started uh, making some drawings there. I would print them out and then redraw them uh, in ink just to like uh, hand in my work nice. because it was mandatory to make it uh, by hand. This is like a trick you guys used in school or uh, was it just that you did that? Uh, many people did it, but uh, usually at uh, a later stage when they, because most people got familiar with, uh, uh, for example, we were taught ArchiCAD. Uh, most people got familiar with it uh, at like second, third, or even fourth year. Mm -hmm. And I just loved it so much that I uh, got into it like within a week. Nice. Uh, so uh, I just uh, like started using it a lot and, but still like, uh, I didn't like to do, do hand drawings. I did just like to sit with a piece of paper, do some like mess. I did. I really loved mess. I, I loved architectural physics mm -hmm. and all that stuff. Um, but uh, like in parallel, I was uh, getting deeper and deeper and into at that time ArchiCAD, mm -hmm. and uh, I really loved the automation part. Uh, so I've just started, uh, getting better and better at it, uh, like, uh, way above the university level. For example, um, at the second year we had, uh, we, we've had a course in uh, like, uh, a more in-depth course at, at ArchiCAD. Mm -hmm. And I was so good at that point that the teacher just, uh, gave me the highest mark oh, nice. and, uh, set me like, uh, to watch after, after other students when they passed the exam. So he didn't even give me the exam because he knew that I would just like uh, yeah, <laughs> roll over everything. It, yeah. And yeah, and he just uh, like uh, uh, gave me the task to look after other students so they wouldn't cheat. Uh, that's how, how much I, I fell in love with it. But you spoke about automation, right? Uh, I've never heard of automation in ArchiCAD. So could you tell us more about uh, how you implemented automation back then? Uh, so it's, it's uh, not like, uh, so automation, like for example, grasshopper, you can do automation, like, uh, drawings could be generated mm -hmm. by some rules right, or right. schedules or something like that. So you have the schedules in ArchiCAD, you have like, uh, live links between elements. So right, they right. would get like, mm, like just named like after each Revit, other. Right? 
Uh, yeah, so uh, I'm actually familiar with Revit. I don't use it as much as uh, Archicad uh, because, like, historically in my country, Archicad is more popular, mm. and uh, the offices in my town uh, aren't uh, very large. So it's usually around uh, 20 people. We just have probably two to three offices with 50 people that have like all the engineers and stuff. And for a smaller office, like I think uh, that up to 30 people, Archicad is uh, probably better than Revit mm -hmm. because it has a much uh, easier learning curve, but yeah, it absolutely. doesn't work. It doesn't work as well in large team with a lot of engineers. So at that point, switching to Revit might be a good idea, but still like uh, everything can be done with Archicad as a base. So it's, it's, it's not like an inferior software to Revit. I didn't think that way at all, but uh, it's not just like a biased opinion. I do use both. Yeah, I think in terms of uh, flexibility of design, uh, Revit feels more rigid compared to Archicad, right? Yeah, so the main thing uh, for me is uh, Revit requires a lot of structuring. Like mm -hmm. Revit really requires a BIM manager. Even if the team is small, like five people, it already requires like a pro user or a BIM manager. But because otherwise things will get really complicated. Uh, on the other hand, in Archicad, it's much more flexible. You can just uh, uh, do things the way you like and it will work in the end in some way. It won't be very efficient. It won't be very fast, but it will work. Mm -hmm. And in Revit, the things can just go horribly wrong. Yeah, yeah. I can relate to that. All right. So uh, you've, you became a pro in Archicad and then what made you uh, decide to do a master's in architecture? Um, uh, uh, so to be honest, like, uh, in my country, just, uh, like most people pursue masters. Okay. And for me, uh, I've already got a job. Like I got my first job at my, uh, last year of bachelor studies. So I thought that, uh, I can, I can pretty much make it uh, to like, I can make a 90, uh, 95 job and the university at the same time. And plus masters has uh, less learning hours. It's more flexible. You get to speak with uh, your tutors more. You can do yeah, like you can pass exams in like more flexible times. So it oh, nice. should be even easier to combine a job and uh, university studies. And I've had really good marks at my bachelor studies. Okay. And I, I just, uh, I got a scholarship for masters and uh, I could combine it with my work. So I thought like, um, I really like the generic architectural studies because like, uh, Archicad, you can Google some uh, like lessons, you can go through documentation and learn things, but you can't learn to be a, like a generic architect yeah. by yourself. You really need a university for that. Like no courses will give you that information. So that's why I, I, I enrolled in uh, in a master's studies program in my university. And it ha had an agreement with uh, a university in Poland. So it's a neighboring country. Uh, say, uh, they have an agreement and they provide UNESCO scholarship. Oh, wow. uh, so uh, like after learning, after studying for a year in my uh, like hometown university, uh, I've got, uh, I started studying in uh, Lublin University in Poland mm -hmm. uh, in parallel. It okay. wasn't like a, uh, it wasn't like an Erasmus program. It, it wasn't double studies. It was just, it was actually double studies. So I, I was studying full-time in my hometown and in Lublin. It was an about six hour bus drive with the border uh, clearance. Oh, wow. So it, it, it was manageable. And uh, I've had to, um, I've had to take them in parallel only for six months. So it wasn't a big problem. And you were working at the same time, right? No, no, no. Uh, when I started <laughs> studying at two universities, I've quit my job because it, it was, a, it wouldn't be manageable. Okay. Uh, yeah. I thought like uh, generally most of the people out there would, since you said that you could manage uh, both your work and masters, it's a general norm out there. 
uh, yeah, but I, I couldn't ma- manage three things, like three really major things, like yeah. a nine to five job and two full time studies. Uh, so I finished my master's in uh, Lviv. And uh, then in about six more months, I've got a master's in Lubin because because they um, uh, they could take some of my marks from Lviv because nice. they had an agreement and I didn't have to go through all of the uh, study program there. Only like um, I basically had to take like 12 subjects uh, and then uh, pass a diploma and uh, and it was done. I, I've, I've received a second uh, master's diploma. Right. And how uh, different was it compared to your bachelor or the master's in architecture? Uh, it, it was uh, it was really different from uh, studying in Ukraine because uh, so Poland is a part of the European Union. So uh, like firstly, they have European Union building codes and I wasn't familiar with those. I've, uh, I've had to take time and learn those. And the um, so uh, in Lviv, it was very old school, like uh, we would just uh, attend classes, study there and everything. Uh, but in Lublin, we uh, often had like, uh, so we went to construction a lot on our engineering course. Nice. Uh, we did, um, we, did, we studied many things uh, like uh, on the actual building site. It was uh, uh, like... I don't know, like more playable style. Yeah, hands yeah. on, and uh, you got got to know more about the site, right? Uh, I already knew about this site since I was working for like a year and a half for almost two years okay. <laughs> as an architect. But by that time, but uh, it was uh, really cool to go there with a with a teacher, and it mm-hmm. it like all the teachers were. Like, mm, in their 40s 50s so right. they they're much more experienced than me and i've i've had a lot to learn from them um, uh, and um, because of the unesco scholarship it it was affordable like i wish i went to architectural school in london but yeah. <laughs> that's just unmanageable money and uh, with a scholarship it it's still like a european union uh, awesome so you completed your master's and your bachelor and you were like a pro in Archicad. Uh, what was your next steps after this? Uh, so <clears throat> my first steps in computational design actually started from Archicad. So uh, it has automation like schedules and uh, all the general stuff you have in Revit. Hmm. It handles uh, library parts differently. So they are uh, kind of more parametric in Revit just to edit uh, by hand. So you can draw parts, set some dependencies and it will work. In Archicad, on the other hand, you can just uh, like draw as in SketchUp and then just save it as an object or you can go the other route. So Archicad has a proprietary coding language called GDL. Right. Uh, it's, uh, it's described as a graphic description language and it uh, allows you to create like completely parametric objects. Um, not in the way in, uh, you do it in Revit. Yeah. And, and like it's, it's much uh, more in-depth than Revit families. So... Okay. Uh, you just write your object in code completely. Like there's uh, no saving lines or geometry or everything like that. You have to write the geometry in co- like every piece of geometry has to be written in code. And also you have to do, you can do the uh, 2D representation and 3D differently uh, all in like one object. You can uh, make new parameters and stuff like that. But the thing with GDL is that it's basically a text editor. So the development environment is very outdated, like right. incredibly. It's, it's just like a notepad. But um, but it's not a bad language at all. It has all the, uh, all the necessary information. You can easily do LOD 300, maybe even 400 objects there. Oh, nice. This is all on the text, right? Yeah, wow. so they have uh, they have a GDL reference guide shipped with Archicad. It's about it's uh, like seven hundred twenty pages for the oh, current wow. version of Archicad. Don't tell me you went through all that. 
Yeah, multiple times, like okay. many, many times. Uh, it's 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 the main source of information, and I've just like when I just started, it was all a mess. I would just like go through it, and I I couldn't understand many things. So um, GDL just has like basic commands. For example, if you want to do a cube, it has like a, a block or a box command. But if you want to do some uh, evaluation of geometry, it doesn't do it uh, straight out of the box. It has basically no included libraries. You have to go, you, you have to do the mess yourself. Mm-hmm. Like all the libraries in any program, like in uh, like the Revit API or uh, Grasshopper libraries, they were written by someone from the from from scratch just by using Mass. But but they are there, and in Archicad, uh, you can do them with Mass, but they aren't there. You have to do all yourself, and the community isn't very large. So I started my path with with that, and uh, basically I would spend uh, half the time reading the reference guide and half the time like learning. Uh, at first, even basic trigonometry uh, and algebra and all that stuff. At first, even sc- first i even like had to revise the school level then university level then some parts even more in depth i had to do a lot of math so in a way that helped you develop your computational thinking skills right yes so when i first opened grasshopper it was just like oh wow like everything's here it's so easy oh seriously bro that's so for me i find it so difficult you know when i jump into grasshopper and all that if you started your pass from GDL and spend like two years there, uh, not, not not trying like even uh, like Dynamo or Grasshopper, they are so much easier than uh, writing something in GDL. You have you have so many tools and, and the node system. You can sketch uh, your algorithms yeah, very fast. Uh, so like I've jumped into Grasshopper. I loved it and started uh, learning it a lot it it has some some logic that's uh, specific to it yeah like and I, and I all had, that, right? um, yeah so uh, I, I first started working a lot with uh, nodes and like um, out of the box components mm-hmm. but uh, the the more time i've spent there the more i understood that um, it's it's a very generic uh, tool set so you still have like a, a specific work and the tool set is generic so many things you do aren't very efficient mm-hmm. and i started uh, switching to code uh, at that point i knew gdl at i don't know what level like there are no tests for that so okay. i can judge myself and i started learning learning python nice. uh, because um because I, I also do some photogrammetry and uh, other things and uh, Dynamo has uh, Python. So I thought it's a, uh, it's a very widely used language and it would be a good starting point. And Archicad also promised to implement Python. It should right. be in the next version. Okay. Mm. And so is uh, C Sharp, right? Uh, C Sharp is also widely used uh, to create Revit. Yeah, items. yes. So uh, like uh, to jump ahead, I learned Python and then in about uh, two months, I've also like started learning C Sharp oh, because nice. okay. it, you basically have to use, uh, uh, you have to use both. And uh, considering that GDL is a subset of basic, okay. so it's kind of very similar to visual basic language mm-hmm. which is also which is basically which is the third language used in grasshopper and in revit right. so um like uh you can start learning like many people just learn grasshopper and they think they can uh, go away with it uh but then they understand they have to code Sometimes mm-hmm. they start learning Python and think they they're done with it. They they, they, they know Grasshopper, they know Python, and it's uh, and everything's great. But no, uh, you have uh, some custom components written in C Sharp. You have their Revit. Uh, at some point, you s- want to start playing with its API, and uh, so basically, you have to learn C Sharp. And that uh, after you know Python, you know C Sharp, and you know some. Well, not some at that point, you know uh, how to do things with notes in Grasshopper. Uh, you, 
at that point, basically you're, you need just like a few weeks to learn also visual basic. Mm-hmm. So at that point, you know, it all, so, well, not all, like after <laughs> yeah, that, of course. start diving into JavaScript and uh, completely custom applications without using uh, Revit Grasshopper or anything at all. Just go full custom mode. All right. Just to back up a bit, uh, just for the uh, benefit of our listeners, could you tell us what exactly an API is? Uh, so it's, uh, the, the interface, uh, with which you connect to, uh, like application functions, uh, just to like, uh, say it in simple words. So Revit API, so, uh, allows you to, for example, create Revit walls with code. So you just uh, open code, uh, define your rules, compile it as a plugin, and uh, the API The API is a communication interface between code and Travit. Yeah, so essentially that there are already codes written and then we create extra codes, right? Uh, yeah, so the, yeah. Uh, s- um, Basically, in every language, it works that way because it, it has to go uh, very low level uh, to create the actual components so they would be fast. And that's one of the reasons why Revit isn't very fast, actually, because it uses C sharp and not a, a lower level programming language right, right. like C, for example. But Archicad uses C. Uh, uh, so it's like uh, it has pluses and minuses. So Revit is m- is more flexible for development, actually, uh, but it's uh, not cross-platform. You can't use it on macOS, uh, but it's easier to develop there. And with Archicad, it's cross-platform. It has macOS version, but it's harder for developers to use it. And because of that, the like the plugin ec- ecosystem isn't as large, and it's right. uh, it all has the benefits and uh, the drawbacks. Cool. Awesome. So you've picked up on all these skills. I don't know what an architect would do after you're so good at coding, right? Uh, what were your next steps after all this? Um, uh, I want to get into like full custom uh, things, uh, web-based uh, like playgrounds. So basically, um, uh, product configuration is becoming uh, quite popular, and uh, currently there are uh, solutions like ShapeDiver to do that. And uh, I would love to write something uh, simple to uh, just just a simple like browser editor, uh, which you can uh, just implement on your website so that people could sketch something. It would uh, create the geometry with basic rules and give you a bill of materials out of that. But uh, all in just uh, web without uh, the grasshopper backend or Revit backend or anything like that. With the UI and all that. Yeah, just like like just a website without using the current uh, architectural software. All right, great. So uh, could you tell us about you presently play a role of BIM manager, right? Yeah. So how did you jump into BIM from coding? Mm, I didn't actually uh, switch from being an architect. So at first coding, like for the first three years after I started learning GDL, I uh, didn't make a penny out of coding. It was just my hobby. I was doing it at home. Just like, I, I, I just like, go on the street and be like, okay, so this roof is interesting. I want to make a parametric object of that roof. I would just get home and spend 10, 20, 30, whatever hours until I get it done. And Mm -hmm. I always uh, focus on getting things done. Uh, And so I just, I would still work as an architect full time and play with code. And because of playing with code, I, I got a much deeper understanding of the uh, software. So I I just have like intuition. So if something doesn't work, the knowledge of code, the knowledge uh, how something could have been written, 
I can just guess what what went wrong, and those guesses are almost always correct. Mm -hmm. And uh, because of that kind of sixth sense, <laughs> I was really good at fixing all of the problems with uh, Archicad in the office. And um, I'll, I was much better in Archicad than anyone else. Uh, that's why I got promoted to a manager. Nice. And. Um, uh, in a 20 people office, uh, your BIM manager role isn't just BIM management, you still get to work as an architect. So currently I'm kind of uh, an architect, BIM manager and computational designer all in one. Mm -hmm. But it, but it makes the job actually uh, more enjoyable because you get to do many things. So in student years, I, uh, I've actually traveled to the USA. I lived in Washington, D.C., and uh, I, I got a summer job there as a bike rental person. Okay. And um, yeah, I was just renting out bikes. And um, I went, like, I was alone in the city, and I thought, like, uh, what would I do at home? Like, there is nothing useful. So uh, I thought about getting more hours, but then I was like, okay, so I spent 40 hours here in the burning sun, the renting bikes, and it's not very enjoyable. Mm -hmm. I don't really want to spend more hours than 40 a week doing that. So I picked a different job. It was still actually in the sun on the bicycle. It was a bicycle sandwich delivery, but mm -hmm. just mixing those two allowed me to work more hours and still uh, have no burnout. Mm -hmm. I could, I could, uh, I could work more, uh, get get more money, obviously, and uh, and be happy. So that's why I still try to combine like architecture, BIM management, and uh, computational design because I can uh, like manage my time and get no burnout because. It's all in one field, so they all supplement each other, mm -hmm. but uh, but they are quite different. Yeah, and I feel that uh, these days the role of an architect is not just to be an architect, right? It's to go beyond the regular uh, norm. Yeah, like uh, whenever I think about it, I'm like, okay, so with all the automation going on, uh, basically any intern level architect uh, tasks can get automated. Like what will those students do? Hmm. It, it takes a lot of time and dedication to learn the more complicated stuff, but the, like the easier jobs just get done by the computer, like more and more. So uh, I, I just don't even know how the world will look. <laughs> With all the, that automation, like uh, I'm not scared for myself because I'm kind of in the on guard of, the, of those things. Mm. But the for the for the people just starting out, um, it's quite scary. Like architecture, even now nowadays, it's not a very like uh, giving career. Like you don't get paid a lot. You get a lot of overtime, a lot of stress. Yeah. It's 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 not a very good career path, honestly. It, it shouldn't be a career at all. It should be <laughs> your passion. Yeah. Uh, but with all the difficulties that would come, uh, <laughs> I'm kind of scared for them. But the only difference, what I would say is between an algorithm and an architect is we perceive art better than algorithms. Or do you feel that that would also change because of AI? Uh, it's the state of AI nowadays is, uh, I don't think it's a major threat for the actual human labor in the very near future, like maybe even 10 years. Uh, but the, um, the algorithms, uh, th so the better the software company will manage its, um, plugins, uh, distribution and openness, uh, the more of them will get done and the more of the manual repetitive work will get automated. So uh, there will be less, uh, less intern level labor. But uh, at the current state, for example, only uh, McNeil does this well. Mm -hmm. So only, uh, it's very easy to develop a plugin. Well, well, not very easy. Like the actual distribution phase of a plugin for grasshopper or rhinos, rhinoceros is easy because you have like food for rhino. You don't have to do a lot of 
uh, form filling a lot of like uh, they don't have a set of specific rules how the component should be written they don't check it just uh, if it has no viruses basically you can upload it uh, someone downloads it tries if it works uh, no almost all of them work but with archicad and revit they have a more closed ecosystem they require you to fill out a lot of stuff they censor you and uh, it, it just makes the life of developers uh, much harder and be i think because of that uh, not many people get into automation now and not many people work on uh, work on automating architecture firstly because like the salaries don't force you to do that mm. or like you don't get that get paid that much uh, you need to invest in education you need to invest a lot of time uh, the universities don't teach computational mm. design like very few of them do at a, like a reasonable level with some coding and stuff uh, and the like if someone's a hobbyist he can't like he can, you can just make your own product and expect to get a fortune out of it. Uh, you can only expect to get censored and like just <laughs> uh, need to do like uh, re-upload it ten times before it gets accepted. It's it's not a very like giving environment. Uh, but if that changes, uh, things might go uh, go pretty fast from there. Right. But you're also uh, into design automation, right? You work part-time for uh, Finch 3D and also for Splash Modular. So what is like a typical process that goes into automating design or maybe uh, what happens? Uh, what is what is like the backbone of design automation? Uh, it's... Uh I'm not sure I'll translate this, this good, but it's like eating an elephant. Like it's so huge. You can just like grab a fork and start. Okay. <laughs> you have to uh, divide everything into a, as small piece as possible and then get it back together into a big elephant. So you start with a task and it's, and you look at it it's, and it's taunting, like it's very complicated. You don't know where to start, but you just have to like divide it into smaller and smaller and smaller, smaller tasks. And um, the main skill you need is like this uh, to think in abstractions mm -hmm. uh, and, and actually architectural studies help with that a lot. Like, uh, Almost every student that graduated architecture has that abstract thinking. So almost every architectural student can switch to be a good programmer. Mm -hmm. Like it's not, uh, I think it's not about math or your like, or any other skill. It's, it's mostly abstract thinking. And with the design automation, you have to just like think very, uh, thinking very like large abstractions at first so that's the hardest part when you when you just receive the task and you need to find find a way to start working on it and uh, and then then you at, at the very lowest level you have to get to the mess behind uh, how everything works and you just uh, you just start writing it in notes and code and it putting it all together. If you do it that way, if you divide everything into a small piece as possible, it will always get get into into what you need. It will always work. But if you just rush doing one thing, like okay, so you you got a task and you know how to do one particular thing, you do it in the fastest way you know, and uh, you will get yourself into a lot of trouble because you can't progress from that point. You have to build a very good foundation. Hmm. Like uh, I always take a piece of paper and uh, every algorithm I create just starts on, on paper until I almost have like, um, I don't need to write like the full code. I just sketch it out, but uh, I, I will on, only start typing any characters in the computer after I get all the sketch completed on, on paper. Nice. So could you tell us about any project that you found challenging uh, that implemented design automation? Yeah, so like uh, uh, any project can uh, 
can get benefit from design automation, but it, but it actually only makes sense uh, in the economy of scale. So like if you got two rooms and you're like, okay, so they, uh, they all belong to specific rules. I can just place, for example, the bed there and the, like the chair there. There's absolutely no reason to write an automation program to do that for two rooms. You will do it as a human much faster. So you always have to think like, okay, so how many times should this get done? Like, it, does it even make sense to go into code and try to automate it? And um, it's also like a mistake many people do. For example, like uh, interns in uh, my my day job, uh, they they really like automation, and but they but they try to automate everything like mm -hmm. i'm like okay like why did you spend four hours trying to do it uh, like your level isn't very high you can do it really fast you can even run into like dead points so you spend four hours you run run into a dead point so you basically done nothing beneficial while you could make it by hand in like 10 minutes like why did you do that so the first question was automation is do i need it like that's the main question. And then when you do automation, you, you're always like uh, dragged into making it even better, like optimizing stuff. And you always have to give yourself that question. Like, do I need it? Like, will it, will it actually be beneficial? Will it make money or will it lose money? Right. Yeah. Makes sense. And do you feel that uh, coding becoming more and more essential as a skill for architects? Do you feel that it should be included in the architectural education system? Um, I, I actually think that coding should be included in just like all higher education at least bachelor level. So bachelor isn't actually like a hundred percent specialization on your topic. Like if you're learning architecture as a bachelor, you will still have like 10, 20% of subjects that are generic that that you would learn them in, in, in any course. Hmm. In master's, maybe not, but in bachelor, I think like some simple programming, maybe like only six months training, maybe things like Python. Like Python is, is a, a very simple, powerful and popular language. And I think it should be taught like everywhere. Not maybe high school, like uh, programming isn't actually high school material in yeah. I, I I think that way, but in um, university studies, it should be included. Yeah, absolutely. I still remember we had Java in school and uh, I used to mug up code and then go give the exams. So. <laughs> like, uh, so uh, in school, you can uh, take coding as just like, okay, so I have this set of rules. I have to write this program. So I was attending a, a course in C sharp mm -hmm. and uh, most of my group was uh, uh, like freshman year university students like they were, they were pretty young and like if the task uh, uh, was very specific to what they were uh, told to do they were fine they would do it perfectly but if you go like left or right one step they're just in uh, in panic mode. They don't know what to do. So they uh, they think about programming as like I don't know, like memorizing uh, memorizing text, but it doesn't work that way. Yeah, you have absolutely. to understand it. It's the logic, right? Yeah. So uh, in school, uh, people are mostly used to just memorizing things, yeah. and you can't memorize programming. It's more like a university style studying. All right. So the next steps, right now, if you talk about BIM, we, we jump from BIM to maybe IOT and then robotics and then, uh, inevitably AI. So what would be, what are your steps going forward? Uh, for me, um, uh, I just want to improve my uh, current uh, skills. I want to uh, get more into uh, JavaScript currently into platforms like uh, more into web-based platforms. Uh, I want to make some sort of uh, like a shape diver application, even at a very basic level. Um, 
mm, and stuff like that, like more proprietary uh, uh, websites. Um, and also I want to uh, work more on Blender for, for example, Blender got uh, like it has IFC now. So oh, nice. it makes it a viable option for architecture. It's free. And it's free, open yeah. source. It has a very good development community. Its API is completely open. So uh, if some major architectural studio will start promoting Blender for architecture at some way, and it starts getting uh, like uh, taught at universities, I think like at the current state, if you just look at everything in a nutshell, Blender is the best architectural software because you can make it your own and you completely own it like Revit. So you pay for Revit yearly and then Autodesk decides to change the subscription price. And you're like, okay, I've spent all this time in Revit. I have all my project there. I've written so many uh, plugins for it and okay, I can't afford it now. Like architecture isn't uh, very well paid and I just can't afford it. But those things can't happen with Blender because it's free, it's community owned. And so it puts it it in the best position. If, If someone goes, like if some big players start promoting it, uh, I think Blender is is the best software because because you you will really own it. Even Archicad is pretty good, and and Rhinoceros actually Revit in, is in the worst spot because for it was Revit you have to pay for a subscription and subscription can change and that's not a good thing at all. But you can at least buy a full license of Rhinoceros and Archicad and and at least make all the projects and and use all the plugins you made forever. Yeah, but for the infrastructure projects in general, everyone uses Revit, right? Most of the bigger companies and... Yeah, people use Revit, but there's IFC and Revit supports it. So um, uh, the big vendors can't tie you into any software anymore. There is an open class uh, where you can share geometry, you can share uh, data embedded into geometry, you can share everything like like PDF. Like what would the world be without a PDF file format? For example, like if Microsoft Word invented its proprietary uh, like text file format and made uh, Word only subscription based, like what would it be? It's not a competing environment. It's just like it's bad. It's, it does it it wouldn't uh, support any innovation that way mm-hmm. but at least every architectural software now uses IFC at a reasonably good level so it allows any developer to create architectural software that would that could be integrated uh, into the workflow of the studios and if it's a good solution, it could just become the main one. So uh, Blender could be integrated into any workflow, at least slowly at start and start pushing everyone out. Oh, if, nice. it's, if, it, if it gets uh, the uh, support and media attention. Um, but for me, Blender ha- is in the best spot because uh, if the developer community starts liking it and they can develop things for it really fast it it just has no borders you can you can you can do everything you like and it's 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 great it doesn't work that way for rabbit and Mm archicad and it's presently used mostly by animators and uh, the video video industry right yeah so like blender is just a platform it's it's not only like a 3D modeling, you can do even even 2D picture uh, editing like Photoshop in, in Blender. You can basically do anything and it has a completely open API. So basically like Blender has no boundaries. Oh, nice. Okay. So you would suggest uh, architects to pick up on Blender? Mm, at least look at its site. Like if... Uh, for example, Ukraine, like every university teaches Archicad. Uh, so like you have no option other than to learn Archicad because like no one will take you for a job without it. And uh, for example, for engineers, like Revit is a is a standard for MEP work. So like you have to learn Revit currently. But uh, 
if you really like architecture, you will probably want to spend some time at home, like playing with stuff. <laughs> and I think that Blender is is a good thing to play with. Yeah, awesome. That's some great advice, uh, Pablo. I think our listeners would start picking up on Blender as well. So could you uh, tell us more about 3D scanning, point scans, and something called photogrammetry? Um. It's very useful. Uh, so the 3D scanning is still uh, pricey. Using an actual scanner is like, for example, the cheapest uh, scanner you can do job done with is uh, the Leica BLK360. And it costs $1,500 plus tax. Mm-hmm. Plus tax. Uh, and, and, and that's a lot. Oh, it's actually not 15. It's... Uh, one hundred fifty hundred dollars plus a year uh, one way like fifteen thousand fifteen thousand dollars okay uh, plus tax wow okay yeah that's a lot and uh, it it provides really good results i actually work with scans from it from time to time but the, the other option is photogrammetry uh, so for photogrammetry, uh, the software isn't very ex- expensive. Like it has very reasonable prices. For example, there are uh, two main uh, programs out there. Uh, it's Agisoft MetaShape and uh, Capturing Reality. Uh, so the first one costs uh, $200 for the most basic license. And that's not a lot considering like a scanner costs uh, $15,000. Uh, and the other one uh, has... Um, has a Steam version. Mm-hmm. It's a monthly subscription, but it has uh, regional prices. So in Ukraine, it costs like fifteen or twenty dollars per month, and that's reasonable. Like you can afford that easily. Like even if you have like a small project once per month, you can justify buying it. Uh, so you for photogrammetry, you can just go take your phone and start taking pictures and and uh, try uh, how it works um, and it's very good for scanning like uh, building facades especially like older buildings scanning mm. uh, the basements the attics that have a more complex structure uh, and when you get good at it it will be much faster than actual uh, like manual a measurement was a ruler or a laser ruler. It gets much faster. Plus you get the texture, plus you get a model for uh, designers or visualizers. So like if you go into a building, you can just picture every brick in the wall and then you can know like uh, which brick where is in what condition, if you can reuse it in your project or if it's too bad, you have to plaster that wall and stuff like that. Photogrammetry, just base, getting a basic result isn't complicated. So you, you, so basically you just take your phone, you can download a trial version of uh, Metashape or Capturing Reality, and you will get some result. Uh, it, it's uh, more tricky to get a really good, precise result. Uh, so the highest precision I got uh, was a, a five-story staircase, okay. and it was uh, a two-millimeters... Um, uh, worrying between my uh, measurement points. So I still made like uh, some measurements with a laser ruler and made the scan. Uh, and it was just uh, about two millimeters difference. Yeah, that's so negligible. It's basically, right? yeah. yeah, it's uh, it's very negligible. And I got like, uh, I got everything. I got the uh, tiles uh, on the stairs. I got the... Uh, uh, I basically got all the metal, all the windows. Uh, I also made a scan from the outside. I got the wall thickness and it was an old building. Uh, okay. And uh, the wall thickness was, would change with height there. And it's very hard to measure. And with photogrammetry, I could get a very precise like wall thickness. So it goes from basically 700 millimeters at the first floor to uh, like 250 millimeters at the last floor. And it's uh, very complicated to measure by just like regular means. And photogrammetry gave me a perfect section. And this is all from your phone. Um, so you you start with a phone, and then you use uh, you basically have to use a drone for uh, facades because right. they are 
they're high and you need to picture take pictures of the roof and for the phone like if you got a really good phone uh, it will work but it's always cheaper to buy a, a mid-range camera than a really good phone and a mid-range camera will have like much more sharpness and uh, the picture sharpness is the main factor in photogrammetry not even the megapixel count it, it has to be sharp especially in low light condition mm-hmm. and the phone just doesn't give that cool and do you feel that uh, this technology would primarily be used in renovation projects and also we had the Notre Dame fire right so we had a digital twin of the project which helped in reconstructing the cathedral yeah yeah so it's it's mostly renovation and uh the the land scanning to to get like the landscape for uh, so you still need to take um especially trained person with a certificate to do proper right. land measurements but uh, when you're just like in a, when you haven't signed a contract and the uh, customer just decides if he even wants to buy that land you can just take a drone take some pictures you get a a, a pretty rough well, not not necessarily rough. It depends on how good your drone is and uh, your skills and the mark points. But you g- can get a, a good uh, sense of the landscape and start sketching the project. And uh, you can just make some uh, like costation from that really quickly. And then the customer can decide if he needs all those services that are necessary for legalization and all this stuff. Cool. So, like photogrammetry and drones, uh, so they 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 are actually even closer to being a part of like a regular architectural lives encoding, in my opinion, because they are more accessible, uh, they require less time, and they provide like almost instant results. Like you still take pictures as an architect mm-hmm. and taking them at a more advanced level and uh, IRL pictures from a drone is just like uh, your natural transition. But coding is kind of uh, like uh, a new direction. You have to start learning from scratch. It's, it's not as intuitive. Awesome. So I'm a regular architect and probably I'm an architecture student and I want to jump into coding, creating scripts, automation and i want to be like pavlo <laughs> how does it all begin and how do i get started uh, probably python <laughs> just uh, the best thing to do is to learn python and uh, don't don't try to uh, implement it in architecture right away because uh, architecture requires um, at least somewhat complicated algorithms and uh, at the start even like making some some if blocks various temple ev- uh, evaluations mm-hmm. is uh, it, it requires <laughs> it requires some time like uh, just at the start of your coding career so uh, you have uh, sites like udemy uh, coursera uh, for example, just a, a trick at Coursera, uh, most courses are paid, mm-hmm. but you can uh, request uh, financial aid. Uh, so uh, like if you're a student and you don't have extra money to pay for that course, you can just like uh, write your situation to Coursera and there is a very high chance they will just give that course to you for free. So you've done this before, right? Yes, I've actually received one course for free from Coursera when oh, nice. I needed it. Now, now it's uh, now I wouldn't do that, but uh, at that time I, yeah, I I really needed the financial aid. Which course is this? Uh, it was a Python course, actually. Okay, cool. <laughs> All right. Uh, I just wanted to talk to you about BIM in Ukraine. Uh, BIM has become compulsory in most of the Scandinavian countries and uh, most of uh, most of the countries in Europe, right? So what is the scenario of BIM in Ukraine? Uh, it's not mandatory. Uh, so, but um, all of the architectural students are taught BIM from like year 2006, maybe 2008. Mm-hmm. Uh, so all of the... Uh, the current architectural generation knows it and all of the firms adopt it. Like every studio that's more than five people uses BIM in Ukraine. But uh, BIM, like there's BIM and there's 
3D modeling of architecture. And most firms actually use 3D modeling of architecture. It's not actually BIM, but it's uh, but it's a, at a reasonably good level without government enforcement. And when it uh, starts getting there for like uh, more complex projects like uh, hospitals or something like that, uh, that won't be a problem. There's plenty of people that are uh, trained enough to do that. And the standards and guides are also in place, right? Yeah. So the the standards uh, are currently, um, Ukraine has a a pretty good self-organized community. So there are, uh, there's an uh, ISO for like generic BIM standards and every country uh, should have uh, taken it and adopted for its, uh, and adopted it. But um, Ukraine didn't do it yet, but the community did. It's, uh, it's actually just like uh, a job done by enthusiasts, but the community is good. And people, people who do actual BIM and not 3D modeling are mostly following it. So it, uh, it kind of ruled itself out without any extra help and it works. It works well. Nice. Nice. All right, uh, Pablo, we'll jump uh, quickly into the quick fire round and then I'll ask you the last uh, one last question. Mm-hmm. All right. So which book has inspired you the most as an architect? Uh, it's not an architectural book, but I like the Jules Verne's uh, like three books about Captain Nemo the most. Nice. <laughs> I really like to uh, go over them again. Cool. Uh, who do you like to work in collaboration with, uh, maybe on an architecture project? Uh, and like, like a, like a specific person. Yeah. Any person that you admire or that you look up to. Okay. Um, uh, fast Norman Foster. <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, which city is your favorite? I haven't been in many cities, but it's uh, Philadelphia in the US. Okay. What does a daily routine in Pablo's life look like? Um, just uh, get up at about uh, 8.30 because I live five minutes walking from work. <laughs> oh, nice. Get to work get back quickly and start uh, other work <laughs> and just uh, go to bed whenever I'm just, uh, uh, I, my, my eyes start closing. <laughs> That's the daily routine. So do you have uh, late night shifts as well? Uh, it's not a shift. I actually do. It's uh, like, it's, it's not very good decoding work uh, in like uh, specific time frames. Mm-hmm. I work, uh, so I have a nine to five, nine to six job. Actually, it's, it was lunch break. And, uh, after that I work uh, as I wish, but, right. uh, normally I just, uh, pick the task I feel like doing today. And I just keep doing it, uh, until, until I can, because, uh, for, uh, like in coding and in actual work, I, uh, I try to get myself into a state of like courage. Uh, like I, I, I just forget about everything. I just turn the music up and uh, I'm completely in it. And while I'm completely focused, I, I try not to look at time and not to, not to go to bed while I can still work really efficiently. Because if I force myself to work, I don't work very, very well, like probably everyone. But I very often have that, that feeling of just like uh, looting everything around and it's just me and the work and I work really fast uh, in that state. Wow, that's uh, pretty awesome. I think I need to also do that. So what kind of music do you listen to while working? Uh, it's mostly cloud rap. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so like, I, I listen actually to pretty strange music. Uh, I'm pretty ashamed of the uh, lyrics, <laughs> but I really like the uh, music tonality and the beat. Cool. Nice. And my last question to you is what advice would you give to young architects and architecture students just getting started? Uh, just if you're just getting started, 
like uh, stop and think for a second if uh, you feel it could be your passion. If yes, then just you, you'll be great. You'll manage everything. If not, just like actually try thinking maybe you have other talents because architecture isn't uh, isn't uh, an easy career path at all. Awesome. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, Pablo. Uh, it was a great conversation. I think we spoke uh, quite a bit about the various softwares and the technicalities that goes beyond architecture. So thanks for your time. Uh, what's the best way our students, our listeners could get in touch with you? Uh, LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Cool. So I'll put in Pablo's LinkedIn profile and all the other links in our show notes. And thanks again for coming on to the show. I hope to have you in the future episodes and we could probably dwell deep uh, into other topics which you specialize in. Thank you. All right. You've been listening to the Ak Young Podcast. We're still building the community. Please share this knowledge with someone you know who could benefit. Just send them to akyoung.com where you'll find our free newsletter and for more podcast episodes. Search for the show on any major podcasting platform. Don't forget to subscribe where you're listening right now. And if you liked it, leave a rating or review. 